Recorded live at Toxin Tasting Studios, it's the Clerical Errors Podcast. The podcast that shows you what's behind the collar. Let's go. From the Tox and Tastings Studios, this is the Clerical Errors Podcast. The podcast that shows you what's behind the collar. This is Bullhagen. This is Berg. And this is Vicker. Peter's here. Hey, Pete. Everybody doing good? Oh, yeah. It's an exciting day here. Uh, in a, f- a couple hours, Vicker and I will be going to the Iowa caucus. Ooh. Have you ever been to one of those before, Vicker? I have not. No, this will be my first caucus. Now, you can't really vote. Or no, but it'll be fun to see. Yeah. Right. Any good draft picks this year? Yeah. <laughs> 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 Have you, did you ever, have you ever been to one? Did you go to one at all, Berg? No, I have no desire to see any of that. <laughs> I figured. <laughs> so, um, anyways, what do you got there, Berg? Still drinking George Dickel bottled and bond whiskey. So Okay. I've got a Kirkland sparkling water. I have just a normal water as well. Oh. Yeah, this I is a sneak energy. Sneak. Sneaky. Yeah, we're, this is a kind of an abnormal time for us. It's like late afternoon on a Monday. Yeah. So. Oh, hey, uh, quick quick point of business. I just wanted to point out quick while I had it in my brain. Uh, we are coming up on our five-year anniversary of the podcast. What? That's pretty awesome. Five years. Five years. Wow. This is episode 251. So uh, I wanted to put the word out. If any listeners have any good ideas for the five-year anniversary episode let us know hmm. uh, anything cool we could do or something Within maybe that's reason, when we can launch our us. tiktok channel <laughs> no uh-uh. we can nope. we can launch the tiktok but it has to be yours basically <laughs> yeah which I, <laughs> should scare you because i know what you take pictures of and send to me randomly <laughs> yeah no no thank you <laughs> all right so, uh, Vicar, if they have ideas of what we should do for our five-year anniversary, that's hard to believe. Five years, man. Yeah. Back when I was in my 40s. Well, you did the just dream. turn 50, so. <laughs> and I was in my early 20s. <laughs> Where can they get a hold of us, Vicar? They can email us at feedback at clericalheirs.org. They can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash clericalheirs. Facebook me, bro. And they can find us on X at P for podcast bro all right so uh what am i preaching on i'm preaching on uh transfiguration yeah matthew 17 let me pull up the text didn't transfiguration used to be in the summertime i don't know i don't know i think so i want to say it was like august something that sounds remember, vaguely familiar but i don't know remember from that bo geertz book so when did it become the hammer of god so like when did transfiguration become a Movable feast. I don't know. Anyway, hmm. continue. I don't know. So, the gospel according to Matthew. I, I just, by the way, Burke, I just do what I'm told with a lectionary. <laughs> You're asking too many questions. <laughs> I open up a book. It says it's transfiguration. I move on. <laughs> Please, at this point, you're not opening the book. You're just sending the PDF to your secretary, and then right, she I tells open the you, bulletin. Here's okay, what, what are we doing? On? <laughs> 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 All right. <laughs> Okay. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. 
And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Okay, so there's always a lot to th- think about with this because I've preached on it many, many times. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one is, one thing that we often like to point out is the timing of this in Matthew, which is after Peter denies Jesus after he talks about his death, mm-hmm. which is why, Berg, I think it's probably before pre-Lent in the one year and before Lent in the three year is because it's kind of a listen to Jesus and uh, as you, you turn your her eyes towards the cross, that uh, there is a glory beyond the cross, and that while you're bearing the cross and while his glory is hidden, that nonetheless we listen to him, even though it doesn't look like in our world, like anything powerful is going on right now. That'd be one thing. Another thing is you can point out that this is in many ways like his baptism, where you have the, the father speaking. And here you have confirmation from Moses Elijah that uh, is connecting Christ with their work in the Old Testament and their words, that it's the same, it's the same plan of salvation uh, that they were, had in mind, that God had in mind through their work. Another thing is the fact that you can talk about the resurrection here of Moses and Elijah of uh, being with Christ. Berg, what do you got? Oh, yeah. All that's good. <laughs> I don't know what else to... You're fired I mean, up. You're fired up today. <laughs> I mean, like Matthew 17. I mean, it's interesting. Six days. Well, six days from what? Because Luke mm-hmm. 9 says after eight days. And the Lucan passage actually tells them why they're going up on a mountain. They're actually going up to pray. Um, and, and it tells us what uh, Moses is talking about. Yeah, and it it tells them, uh, and he spoke of his departure, his exodus, his uh, his death, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem, which is pretty awesome. I mean, so I mean, you can do everything from, you know, pray prayer to Moses and Elijah, who are talking about Jesus' death, which is the reason why he came. You can also see um, the really kindness that Jesus shows towards Peter and the others because they have no idea what's going on. They say things that they don't know what they, why they're saying it. And yet, uh, what does the father do? He gently chastises them. You know, this is my beloved son, hear him. Right. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, like, I think the kindness towards the disciples because they're talking, but they don't actually know what they're saying. And I think that's something today we could, be a little more, uh, I don't know, cognizant of that. Sometimes our people don't say the right thing. It doesn't mean they need a beat down theologically, but like, 
I don't know, we bear with them and try to see what they are meaning to say as opposed to what they actually say, right? which could be heresy. So, Right. Yeah, because if, you know, if, if we always always sure when someone asks us and they're talking to us, uh, if they're not sure, well, you want them to talk. Otherwise, how can you actually answer these questions? Yeah, yeah. so I, I mean, I think just being cognizant of that, patient, kind. I mean, the father doesn't strike Peter with lightning because he doesn't know what he's talking about. Right. And I think that's pretty common in today's world, too. People shoot off their mouths all the time. Uh, sometimes just out of great enthusiasm, uh, sometimes out of ignorance, but I don't know why don't, yeah, it's not just what people say, but what are they actually meaning to say if they don't have the words to say these things? Yeah. So I don't know. I think there's a great bearing of weakness here with, with the disciples that Mm -hmm. you don't really see in the math, in the Matthew text. Yeah. So does a does a three? I don't remember. Does a three or alternate between the different transfiguration texts? I don't even know what I'm supposed to be preaching on. <laughs> I think I'm preaching on Mark one or something. So I think, I think that it does. So you've so, got a week to figure it out. Yeah, Vicar can find that. I know I'm supposed to preach on like repent for the kingdom of heaven is near for next week. So that's a good one. It was, it's part of it is for me though, as I'm I'm only a few like a few years into the one year. So not only does Transfiguration come at me quick, but the fact that Lent is so early this year too, uh, that just boom, like what are we doing? Talk about Transfiguration already. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It'll come pretty quick. Well, and so. I think too, it's it's a nice ray of sunshine into a. Everyone's tired. It's cold outside. Yeah. It's nice it's nice to see what the end is going to be like that we will be like Jesus. Yeah, and they they were they weren't fried by the presence of God in that situation. Right. It also you know, answers the question too. One of the questions is uh why does God have to hide his glory? You know, well one is because we're sinners, two, we couldn't take it, three, w- there would no be no requirement of faith there if if it's just the glory. Yeah, and it's not even as incredible as you see in the book of Revelation because nobody's fainting here. Right. I mean, they're still, you know, even though their brains are muddled from the glory, I mean, they're still actually able to say stuff. Unlike yeah. John, who when Jesus appears to him in, the, in Revelation 1, you know, he falls down as if he's dead. Like, he faints. Right, kind of like what and happened so, at, at a mall in Miami. <laughs> Anybody know what's going on? Apparently, there was some sort of ghost, giant ghost aliens that were... What? Oh, yeah. When did this happen? Am I the only one that heard about this? Berg, I think certainly. you are. I, certainly, I haven't Berg. heard about this. I haven't... This is the first time I've been on my computer today. So, yeah. So, the, apparently, that there were shadow aliens loose in Miami. <laughs> There's a scene of, like, ple- like people running and, like like police cars, like hundreds of police cars trying to figure out what was going on. Well, I think that is something to think about that. Yes. uh, You know, there is a spiritual world. There is a life beyond this one. So Vicar, what did you see here in this article? The Rolling Stones article is saying some people were mentioning the Nephilim from the Hebrew Bible. Oh, it's all coming together now. Yeah. The 10 foot aliens. It's the Nephilim. 
I think the Nephilim are supposed to be bigger that, than that, right? I would hope so. If they're supposed to be giants, I'd want them to be giants. Right. I mean, if you had to <laughs> predict a place where Nephilim would be procreating with, with humans, it would be Miami area, wouldn't it? That would be on the top 10 list, yeah. There we go, top, top 12 list. Come on. What do you mean? <laughs> so I'm surprised you hadn't heard about that, Berg. No. I'm oh. just in my quiet mountain town. Well, I imagine like uh, like Wyoming would be a nice place for aliens to come and visit. You guys can keep all of them. That's fine. <laughs> I mean, it's funny how how uh, the mythology of the United States has kind of changed, right? Mm-hmm. What people would have thought to have been demons are now shadow aliens, right? Right. Yeah, it's true. Because, of course, yeah. they're going to take on the forms which tempt and, and frighten us, which is another thing that the transfiguration dispels because Jesus is king, even though we don't see it. Even though during his uh, his uh, uh, his state of humiliation, he hid it from the world, it was always there. It was always his. From his conception, he sat upon the throne of God, as the Book of Concord says, right? Mm-hmm. But it was hidden, and it's hidden today. But it doesn't mean that Jesus isn't doesn't rule. So, you know, I was, I was thinking about aliens. Okay. So, like, if if you believe hardcore into evolution, right, and you believe that somehow life like de- life developed here just by natural means, you know, mm-hmm. like the Earth was was uh, just the right spot, like everything came together, life formed on this Earth, and then you you think to the fact that well, according to the Big Bang and all this, <clears throat> the universe is how many trillions years old, right? That conceivably, maybe a half a trillion years ago, there should have been an Earth-like also planet in the trillions and billions of stars by which life in the same way could have formed. And if it would have done that like 500 trillion years ago, that certainly there would be aliens all over the place by this point. I mean, isn't that just basically part of the multiverse theory? I don't know. That um, simultaneously to our universe, there's like a countless amount of universes developing alongside and there's ways to like move between them, but it requires like really advanced technology. All right. I I don't know. It's, it sounds like <laughs> conspiracy to me, but this is what people go with. So <laughs> Berg, you're uh so you have no, no comment on this. Any ideas on the aliens here? The, <laughs> You guys are. I, I mean, I I have so many things I could say, but you are not ready to hear them yet. Okay. <laughs> the look of exasperation on the producer's face was something else. We should move on. All right. So we thought we would have a little uh, discussion today, uh, a little informal campfire catechesis, catechesis, right? So, uh, uh, Peter, you want to get the fire going there? Sure. Gather around, everyone. Time for Campfire Catechesis. It is very Listen nice. that crackle. Oh, yeah. I should have brought some marshmallows. How's, how's your whiskey tasting with this fire or soaring fire? 
been so cold, this fire feels good, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Do you know there's actually a revolutionary drink that you you heat it up with a, a hot uh, iron poker that you put in the fireplace, then you stick it into your drink to, like, heat it up? It's pretty cool. So what are you doing your campfire catechesis on? Oh, it's a, a discussion on uh, what does a pastor do? What are, because I think actually there's some confusion a little bit about that, about what does a pastor do when it comes to, you know, uh, his work in the church? How involved should he be with things like the, the building or the finances? What is his main concern? What should people expect from their pastors? Um, and uh, I think it's sometimes a moving target of what people want in a pastor, what is needed in a pastor, what a pastor wants to do. Um, and so I thought we should have a little discussion on that, especially by fire. Indeed. So I guess uh, one thing we could we could talk about is when we talk about pastor, there, there's we talk about ministry, right? Mm-hmm. And we have the priesthood of all believers who who uh, can teach and preach according to their calling, not necessarily public. As a as a representative of the congregation, but for example, a father in the home, a neighbor, right? Mm-hmm. But then at the same time, there is a a public ministry where by which people from a, a locale believers then call a pastor to carry out the public ministry on their behalf. Where am I going wrong, Berg? We're so we're not so prepared today. I'm sorry. Yeah, so it is a distinct office from the priesthood of all believers, as you said, right? First Peter two nine that uh, all Christians are priests and kings before God, right? You are a holy nation, a royal priesthood. What do priests do? Priests pray and they give sacrifices of thanksgiving, right? This is why all of us can stand before God, pray, call upon Him, mm-hmm. and the like. This is not what the uh, office of preaching the gospel is. It is an office that is distinct from that. Uh, This is why the New Testament never refers to their pastors as priests, but it refers to pastors, overseers, uh, bishops, episcopos, or whatever, as as a service office, a ministry. Mm. And so what is that office supposed to do? Well... According to Augsburg 28 on church authority, uh, we, it says this. Our teacher's position is this, the authority of the keys, Matthew 16, 19, or the authority of the bishops, according to the gospel, is the power or commandment of God to preach the gospel, to forgive and retain sins, and to administer sacraments. Christ sends out his apostles with this command. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold the sins of, if you for, withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. And in Mark sixteen fifteen, Christ says, "Go proclaim the gospel to all creation." This authority is exercised only by teaching or preaching the gospel and administering the sacraments either to many or to individuals according to their calling. So that is what a pastor is supposed to do. A pastor is supposed to preach and teach the gospel, whether to many or to individuals according to their calling. So this is different 
than what the state or what families are supposed to do, okay? So, for example, therefore the church's authority and the state's authority must not be confused. The church's authority has its own commission to teach the gospel and to administer the sacraments, Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Let it not break into the office of another. Let it not transfer the kingdoms of this world to itself. Let it not abolish the laws of the civil rulers. Let it not abolish lawful obedience. Let it not interfere with judgments about civil ordinances or contracts. Let it not dictate laws to civil authorities about the form of society. As Christ says, my kingdom is not of this world, John 18:36. Also, when Jesus says, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you, Luke 12:14. Paul also says our citizenship is in heaven, Philippians 3:20, and the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have the divine power to destroy strongholds. 2 Corinthians 10:4. Then jumping down, if the bishops have any other authority or jurisdiction in hearing and judging certain cases as of matrimony or of tithes, they have this authority only by human right, not divine right. If the bishops do not carry out their duties in these areas, the princes are bound, even if they do not want to, to dispense justice to their subjects in order to maintain peace. So part of the, the history of this is the fact that the the Roman Church at the time of the Reformation wielded probably the greatest of political authority mm-hmm. as well, which maybe people— And remember, th- this has been a, on a pendulum. Vicar, do you remember anything about the investiture controversy from church history? I remember talking about it, but I don't remember what it was about now. Yeah, it happened around the year 1000 when really the church was controlled by the lay pri- by the lay princes and they would the argument arose about who could invest or give the the priests and and bishops the you know the the tokens of their office you know and so that was a huge fight and then it kind of swung to the other extreme in 1300 when the pope published a bull which uh, said that he had both swords, both the spiritual sword and the temporal sword, which meant that he could uh, appoint emperors and kings and the like. And then it started to swing back the other way with the Babylonian captivity of the papacy by the French king. And then you had uh, the Great Schism, where you had three different popes running around Europe if you had one more, they could have played pinochle together, but alas, that was not to be. So, um, this has always been an issue, right? And I mean, it's an issue in America today. What is the role of a pastor? Uh, is he? What role should he take in society? Uh, you have very, very extreme views that the church has nothing to do with the civil society, and you see that in people like the Amish or the Mennonites. Right, complete separatists. Where, yeah, to even be in it uh, would be sinful, right? Mm -hmm. You have the other side of it, to the other extreme, where the government actually forces religious um, observance. And you can see this in quite a quite a few places, even in the USSR, where they tried to eradicate religion, um, 
most most of the time most civil societies just tell you well you can talk about this you can't talk about this if you talk about this you'll lose your uh your uh your uh what is it your tax exempt status right mm -hmm. so i mean you see all of these different things a lot of the ways that we try to talk about it in the united states and i'm not sure if this is quite right is that the state well that the church and, and a lot of baptists have talked about this in this way too and since that's a pretty large segment of the population you know how you know the the state and religion are not on the same page but religion should always try to have an influence is the way that we typically talk about it right okay um but that also seems a little problematic um because this is not exactly how our confessions even talk about it right right the you know we distinguish the two powers but caesar is still god's servant just like the mm -hmm. pastor is god's servant and all of these things do overlap even though pastors might not make policy um we should actually speak on issues that are uh that have to do with like for example the ten commandments like the murder of babies is el bado yes right, right. <laughs> I mean, like, because you've gathered at the courthouse at the, well, at the uh, Capitol to talk mm -hmm. about that, haven't yes, you? Yes, a few times. I mean, you know, pastors should uh, be involved and consulted with, with the princes about policy and government. Mm -hmm. They should. We should work hand in hand with one another, even though our powers are distinguished from one another. When you talk about the authority of a pastor... And, and his work. Um, I think one of the things that really causes this pendulum to swing back and forth is the fact that they place the authority in a person or an institution rather than the word. So, for example, if, if the authority comes from uh, apostolic succession and the authority is really separate from the word of God, and the authority to bind and loose is based on according to who ordained you, for example, rather than the word of God, that will lead to corruption. But if the authority is God's word, and the work of a pastor is done under the authority of God's word, where the pastor has no right to speak essentially in authoritative ways, things that are not of scriptures, things that scripture does not say. You know, for example, if I were to say that everyone at Trinity were here had to drive Buicks, that wouldn't make any sense. And uh, I think that's one thing that is often missing in this whole discussion. If you're talking about authority and norm and rule, ultimately, especially for the church, that is the word of God by which pastors are servants of and the people are subservient to if you want to uh this happens all the time in a synodical convention for example where two groups talk past each other where one group likes to talk about a synod the constitution the bylaws and all these things and another group says well this is what scripture says and then another group says but the bylaws say this and the other one says but the scriptures say this and it's a kind of a battle of, well, where, where is the authority in this? Um, I, I remember hearing discussions on that when it came to things like dispute resolution or 
a whole host of things or issues on fellowship where where people one group or sometimes you want to fall back on what is what is what do the bylaws say what did previous conventions say and and another group that says well god's word says this that is a constant rub really and i think from a congregational level as well that can be an interesting discussion to have you know where does the the pastor in the church speak where does authority end where you know where is that ultimate authority and all all along when you talk about the authority of the church and a pastor in that church carrying out the office of public ministry, the authority ultimately is in God's word. Uh, now, where you get into the the weeds a little bit is, is that authority in God's word, is it, is it where it explicitly states it, or is it in a service to that word? Uh, meaning, for example, this happens a lot of times in worship, where, well, we have the right words, it doesn't matter what form it takes. Or we have the, you know, we have kind of the essential things and we're free to do whatever we want. And sometimes, actually, although God's word doesn't forbid certain things that it, you know, because it was written a time before all sorts of, it was written before online communion was a thing, for example, where and people might say, well, the well, Bible doesn't speak specifically to this, but nonetheless, ultimately, as a church, the authority is from the word of God and what Christ says in that word. So, for example, if pastor falls into unbelief, does that mean that all his baptisms were ineffective? Does that mean every time he gave the Lord's Supper that they, they, he didn't offer what Christ gave? No, because it's not in his authority. And when a pastor carries out his duty and people, people want him to fudge on certain things, you know, what are they asking him to do? Well, I, he is bound not by necessarily the, the Constitution or a parish council or a voters to just please them as though he is a hiring. He is bound to God's word and what God's word says and the confessions, which are an exposition of God's word. And I think that's with all this pendulum that we see going on, whether it's relation between the church and the state, but also within the polity of a congregation itself, how it organizes itself. At the top of that list should be the word of God, because that is what a pastor is bound to. That is what the congregation is bound to. And, and sometimes church and its organization can fall back on other things that maybe gives the pastor authority, which isn't there. Because scripture also talks about lording over. And, you know, sometimes the accusation is made to a pastor who is seeking to follow God's word and people don't want it, so they call it lording over. But other times where, you know, we want our pastor to, in a sense, lord it over and take over some of these duties so that we can be a really tight ship and oftentimes that also goes into play. But to me, in this whole discussion, at the top of all of this is God's word as uh, the rule and the norm of all that we do. Is everyone still awake? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, and I think whatever sort of constitution or anything that comes up for a congregation or whatever, we also have to be cognizant that we are also influenced 
by historical trends that we are breathing in air that has stuff in it that we don't even realize we're taking in. So for example, I could see it very easily happening where the pastor becomes more of a CEO with a board of directors because frankly, that is how most successful businesses are run today, right? Yeah, if you want to get things done. <laughs> now, I mean, are there are there pluses and minuses to that, advantages and disadvantages? I mean, yeah, there can be, especially with an aging population, uh, maybe not that many people uh, who can fill offices, auxiliary offices like, uh, you know, trustee or elder or whatever. Um, but are there also disadvantages to that? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, is CEOs can be removed by their board for not performing. And if that's the measure of our success is performance, getting stuff done, um, well, how can you measure spiritual performance or spiritual success? Right. Because that, then, I mean, then the pastor is going to do things that actually fall outside of his divine right, which is preaching the gospel, administering the sacraments, et cetera, et cetera. Because if you, if you need to show performance, well, looking at how beautiful the building is, that's something that's measurable. Mm -hmm. Right. Or, you know, even church attendance getting butts in the pew. That's something that is measurable. And are you going to be removed from your CEO position as pastor if you don't meet a certain quota? Right. What? Uh, which then leads to this. Well, we can certainly get more rear ends in the seats if we, you know, don't talk about closed communion so much or <laughs> that kind of thing. Offer all the fun things. Right. Well, and, and I mean, look at look at Acts chapter 6. I mean, they said, the 12 said to the multitude of disciples, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Sometimes pastors need to help out with things around the parish. That's just the situation we're in. But it cannot take away from what our real task is. We shouldn't leave the word of God to wait tables. Yeah. And it's very tempting to do so. It's very tempting to do so because how do you measure the impact that a sermon has on your congregation? How do you measure uh, your catechesis for your kids? Sure, you can measure how much they know by giving them tests and stuff, but does that actually measure faith? No. No. So um, that's another thing just to be And then the, and the, fact, the fact that, uh, you know, you could be living at a time where the word of God doesn't give the itching ears what they want to hear. And churches could be getting smaller just because they are standing by God's word. Or they're getting smaller by standing by God's word because they're all in their 50s and are done having babies. Right. <laughs> I mean, you know, like demographics also play something in this as well. I mean... How many baptisms have you done compared to what when you first came, Bullhead? Uh, I I bet if I you... haven't had 250 baptisms. Gosh. So I mean, let's be honest, right? Is like 
this is happening. Like sometimes it is a demographic problem. Across the Senate, our baptisms are about a fourth of what they were in the 1950s. Right. So, of course, you're going to be smaller. <laughs> so that's the thing. If we take on the forms of this world, like, for example, a CEO model with a board of directors, well, what guides them? Success and performance. How are you going to measure success and performance? Yeah, by... Well, I mean, how do you, how do you, you know, the kingdom of God cometh without observation, as Jesus says. Right. How do you measure that? <laughs> On the same hand, though, you know, you also want want a congregation to be doing everything it can and not just say kind of rest on and become lazy because of, of uh, you know, you can't measure this. So I think that's kind of what we see as, as a balance, too. Yeah, nobody's saying that anyone should sit on their hands. And honestly, I think a CEO sort of model actually allows people to sit on their hands. Right. Well, because it's the pastor's job. He should do it. Right. He should organize this. He should do this. He should do that. He should do that. The CEO type model doesn't necessarily lend itself to a pastor making a lot of visits to shut-ins and that kind of thing. Ob- right. Or, you know, at, at, at the other hand, it might make him into a tyrant. It certainly makes him into a slave. So... Is that really what we want to do? Do we really want him in charge of the budget? No. I don't I I don't want a pastor in charge Imagine of the budget. Imagine me in charge of the budget. <laughs> <laughs> I mean I mean honestly, Bull Hagen, do you want to be in charge of maintenance around the church? Nope. No. I mean, think of that. That that it's you know, it's not where our gifts lie. And frankly, it takes away from time that could be used in prayer and in study and in preparing sermons and preaching and visiting. I, why in the world would we ever do that? Right. This is why I think it really is unbiblical to have worker priests. It is. Paul gave it up. But what, is, what does Paul also say? Paul gave it up willingly because he had to, because he did that so that way people would trust him, right? Mm-hmm. So, but what does Paul say? He says a worker is worth his wages. Don't muzzle the ox while he's treading out the grain. Why? We get paid so we can study and preach and pray and teach God's word. All those things that are unobservable and yet have a huge impact in the world. Yeah. I mean, this is, isn't, one of the things I think that that actually, in a way, causes pastors to kind of burn out a little bit is, you know, in a lot of vocations, you come home and, uh, you know, if you're a farmer, you can, the harvest comes and you can see the grain <laughs> of going into the combine, you know, you can, uh, you can see uh, the pigs going to market, yeah, you know. And uh, if you're uh, building something, you can see, you can markedly see. Oh, we had a one man, one old guy who literally built houses in town. And he would, before, you know, all these the regulations, he would literally draw the plans, build the house, uh, do the architecture, the plumbing, all the work on it. And, uh, um, and I imagine them having like 20 houses like in a town where you actually 
went through and did all of that. And uh, with pastors, you know, we do what we can. And, uh, you know, maybe... It's all, on, it's all on a bigger timeline, man. We <laughs> right. are building a house. We are planting a field. But we just got to wait. We just, yeah, <laughs> we just might not be alive to see it. And sometimes we are. Like, I actually got a call before I left Latimer uh, that um, some guy in Pittsburgh heard my sermon on uh, the baptism of Christ when I preached on miscarriages. And it was comforting to his, I think it was his son and daughter who had a baby who was going to die in the womb. And it's like, you know, sometimes you get little glimpses that, yeah, mm-hmm. you're, what you've done actually matters. I got asked the other day for a paper I wrote like 12 years ago to help someone prepare for a presentation. Do you know how far back in my emails I had to go for that? <laughs> <laughs> wow. We're talking about something from 2011. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, like, sometimes you do get glimpses that, yeah. That's why I never delete emails. <laughs> it, exactly. See, don't ever delete your emails. It's not because I'm lazy. <laughs> uh, but that's the thing is, yeah, there are glimpses that, yeah, what you're doing actually does matter. Right. Like, our work isn't in vain. It's and there is, a, there is a harvest. Uh, he sends workers out to the harvest. And, and, it, and it does happen in this life. I mean... We have a beautiful job in that we get to reap where we didn't sow. Mm -hmm. We get to inhabit houses we didn't build. Mm -hmm. We get to eat from vine trees that we didn't plant. Yeah. Because our, 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 uh, our predecessors did all that. I mean, Bullhagen, you get to bury people you didn't baptize. You didn't confirm. Yep. Right? Yeah. I I gave an example of this. It actually... I remember one time way back when I was talking to a pastor and mentioned that I had a lot of funerals one particular year. And his response was, well, tell me about your victories. And I I thought I just did. <laughs> yeah, those are victories. <laughs> right. I mean, You it, know, it, Walther preached a sermon about this, that the kingdom of God is always increasing. People die and go to heaven. They still belong to the church. It's just the conquering church, the triumphant church. Yeah. So, so, so I, I think that uh, that all plays a role in this, and I I think of uh, the vicar, you know, with the challenges of the church, you know, you know, in fifty years you'll be doing. Well, I don't know what it's gonna be like because you're a young guy. You know? Yeah, we have no idea how it's gonna change or whatnot. <laughs> <laughs> what what will be here? What will not be here? Yeah. Yeah. Um. So uh, I don't know. Do you guys have? Do you have any? Anything you want to talk about more on that, or I think that's good enough for today. Yeah, yeah, that was a good discussion. We can. What's something we haven't done in a while? How about the Reddit? Confound the clerics, Peter. Play the intro. Confound the clerics. Did Luther come up with sola fide in order to cure his OCD? I have heard people make this argument before, and I want to know what y'all think. I'm very interested in Lutheranism and have been incredibly drawn towards it. However, this question has got me thinking how much validity is there towards it. I can't help but see sola fide in the scriptures. I don't know what where the OCD thing comes up with. Can you say that again? Yeah. 
So the big question is, did Luther come up with sola fide in order to cure his OCD? And then they go to explain it this way. I have heard people make this argument before, and I want to know what y'all think. I'm very interested in Lutheranism and have been incredibly drawn towards it. However, this question has got me thinking how much validity is there towards it. I can't help but see sola fide in the scriptures. Okay, so the question is, did Martin Luther make up sola fide? That's basically what he's asking. I want to say in his German Bible, um, he added the word align, alone, faith alone. Mm-hmm. And Eck, the uh, German Roman Catholic theologian, really, you know, attacked him on that. But this is such a very wooden way of looking at, you know, faith alone. I mean, faith alone is definitely taught in the scriptures. I mean, right. look at it this way. You know, Galatians 2.16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. Again, Galatians 3.2, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? So those two are set sharply at, at odds, Right. And I, and I would say this, say this too, is that it almost the question seems to add like almost seeing faith as kind of an evolving thing throughout history. Meaning, so you had uh, the ancient Oriental society had had this idea about God, and then it kind of evolved into this, and then evolved to that, that, and then it, uh, it became the the Roman Church, and then it evolved until for Luther, which then brought into the idea of faith. The reason why what makes me answer that is the fact that when we just got done not too long ago talking about transfiguration, where the whole point, one of the main points of that is this is not a religion evolving. This is the same God of Moses and Elijah, the same God of the children of Israel, the same plan of salvation, the same thing all along. It's not an evolution of thought or idea invented by man, invented by Martin Luther, but rather it is something that God had all along, Uh, especially if you look at Hebrews where it talks about by faith, line by line, by faith Noah, by faith Abraham, by faith all along the way talking about uh, the the people of Scripture of the Old Testament, how it was all done by faith to show that this was the same plan, even going back to Adam and Eve in, in Genesis chapter 3. But this question would suggest is a very common idea of just a evolutionary thought idea, that this idea bores out of this idea is born out of this idea, and Luther was just another cog in that wheel. Yeah, there's... There's an answer on this thread that uh, goes right along with what you're saying here. He says, of course, sola fide, or I should say they, because I don't know who, who it is. Of course, sola fide exists in scriptures. The most famous Lutheran verse of all is Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. In fact, Martin Luther didn't even come up with sola fide at all. Even the early church since the time of Jesus knew about it. Early Christians wrote about sola fide all the time, and their writings survive to this day. 
some of which are very famous by people like Pope Clement in AD 35, Polycarp in 69, and John Chrysostom in 347, just to name a few. Note that many of the early proponents of Sola Fide predate the Great Schism, the Oriental Orthodox Schism, and even the Council of Nicaea. So in a sense, Lutheranism is actually the most orthodox of them all, though we do credit Martin Luther with using this term sola fide, and our beliefs are recorded in our confessions. So yeah, if you trace it all the way back, even through the fathers, it, it, it's, you can see that it's not a new thing, not cr- created by Martin Luther. That, by the way, by, by us saying that, that's how false religion works too, uh, meaning that that's always, in a sense, seeking to evolve. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've seen that, have we not seen that in the last 40 years? Churches evolving, <laughs> changing thought. Uh, uh, I guess the Bible will talk about it in this way, building on the rock or on sinking sand or being tossed around by wind and waves. Uh, right, that's the whole purpose of like uh, the New Age movement is that we need to get rid of the old stuff and find stuff that new that works for us now. We need to progress and move and build on what we've what we've already had yeah did i step on your toes there berg no okay not at all let's do another question okay here's another question from the the subreddit it is vocation as husband and mental illness i'll start this by saying a few things one i have met and plan to continue meeting with my pastor about this topic two i'm going to leave a lot of details out i don't want to overshare Three, I am seeing a Christian, not LCMS counselor. He says, my wife has both physical and mental health issues. They are taking a toll on our marriage, especially the mental health. I love my wife and I feel like I am watching her destroy herself, especially recently, the last three months or so. I won't won't detail her behavior here for the sake of brevity and privacy, but it's flat out unacceptable. The unacceptable behavior is mostly directed at her parents and me. Her parents and I are trying to support one another, and I am enormously grateful for them. She sees a counselor on her own, but has refused couple-slash-marriage counseling. I believe she is trying to avoid dealing with the big, painful issues and or to attempt to control what the counselor, counselor hears. I have started seeing a different counselor alone because I need to preserve my mental health if I'm going to be of any use to anyone. I have also spoke privately with my pastor several times. I hope to find a way to convince her to do marriage counseling. On the topic of my question, a husband's love for his wife is supposed to be self-sacrificial, right? Like Christ sacrificed for his bride, the church. I have sacrificed for her over and over, but I'm realizing that some some of my sacrifices were unproductive and others were counterproductive, largely because of the mental illness and the unwillingness to deal with it in counseling. I feel like my efforts are being wasted as things stand now. In my vocation as a husband, is there a point where I say no more major sacrifices on my part until we work through things? One thing that makes this difficult is that some of the sacrifices that I have made could have been productive, but ultimately weren't because of the mental illness. I'm facing new decisions to make more sacrifices to allow us to do things that could lead to positive changes for her and us, but I have little confidence that they actually will. I guess I'm trying to sort out how to balance tough love with forgiveness and generosity. I suspect that discussions with my pastor will be more fruitful than a Reddit post, mostly because I can share more details with him, but I'd still welcome general thoughts. Thank you all. Wow, there's a lot there. Yeah. So the question is the role of the husband in in this. 
it's to me it's it's hard to decipher sometimes what's mental illness and what isn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of information we don't have here, um, and like those are very very general things, so we can only give very very right general answers. Um, I'm glad he's talking to his pastor. I think everyone who, everyone who's married, every single person, everyone should be talking to their pastor right. yeah. on a regular basis right. because he's the one who's going to be able to give you, you know, some good advice, God willing. Then the when, other th- when he talk, since he's using the phrase mental illness, I will say that part of marriage, there is a protection in the sense of, you make that that oath because to care for someone in sickness and in health, realizing that you may be the one who suffers from illness too, right? And and so that that definitely is a cross to bear. And I would say it depends upon how much this mental illness leads to a rejection of God's word, and certainly. Christ, the example that he talks about from Ephesians 5 of, of Christ being the husband, being the wives submit to your husbands, for that to work properly, it takes both sides. Mm-hmm. It, it well, take, I mean, look at our Lord. Our Lord was a husband to the house of Israel. Right. Look at judges. The punishments get worse, right? Mm-hmm. In order to bring them back, I mean— there is a, you know, there is a sense in which this breaks down because we're not God. Right. And there's only so much we can we can do. Um I think it's a good thing that he realized that some of his sac- his self-sacrificial activity, his self-sacrificial activity has actually been detrimental to her, and I think that is one thing that we often ignore is the sort of naive self-sacrificing can actually be harmful. Right. Not only to yourself, but also to the person that you're trying to sacrifice for. Because you're encouraging it. So, I mean, when does sac- self-sacrificing become enabling? Yeah. I mean, that's I mean, that's a big thing, right? And this is where it takes a lot of discernment and a lot of judgment to... I mean, it seems like, from what he said, his wife is sinning by lashing out against her parents, which is against the fourth commandment and against him, which is against the sixth commandment. Right. So the, see, the the tough thing is, is, is this, is when you're dealing with like a real mental illness, uh, the, uh, the desire to want to reason goes out the window. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, you're playing a different game. Right. And so you're not, you're not playing baseball anymore. You're playing rugby. Right. And and so and, that's of the frustrating thing is is it's like you know we 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 tend to think of people kind of like a computer you know you do this and this happens but but if you have a community computer that half the things that you put in is random and right and the other thing is is just a lot of mental health in, today is. It, it isn't Christian. It doesn't have Christian presuppositions, right. which is intensely problematic depending on who you're seeing and what kind of advice they're giving you. 
I mean, why wouldn't this counselor seek to work towards, you know, couples counseling? And in fact, is this counselor, you know, for the wife actually exacerbating the problem? Right. By, you know, saying, well, your parents were just crappy to you or your, you know, your husband's just, you know, he doesn't understand. Uh, and I how think, does this lead to how does this lead to reconciliation? How does this lead to healing? How does this lead to an actual reality? And, and I think we down but, downplay the demonic aspect of it too. I agree. I agree. I mean, I and that's the thing is I you know we've had lots of discussions in my Winkle about this. Like, okay, where's the line? Right? When does this move beyond? simply physical problems like, oh, you know, you have an allergy to gluten. This is why you get inflamed and depressed. To, oh, you have maladaptive ways of dealing with the world. We've got to change those two. You are being afflicted by a supernatural force. And this is why we need these people. We need uh, experts. We need experts in the physical and in the mental field to help us with this because otherwise how are we going to do exorcisms when they're actually needed when these experts will say look there's no physical and there's no mental uh problems here like we've come to the 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 edge of our science right and if we don't have that how can we do our job of Casting out demons. How can we do our job of exorcisms? Because when you look at a lot of the driving out demons, they they would often look like, for example, self-harm. <laughs> like also a whole host of mental illness things. Mm-hmm. Right. But this is why we need people who are going to say, look, um, you just need to eat keto. <laughs> <laughs> you just need to sleep eight hours a night. You need to stop scrolling through you know, Snapchat or TikTok for five or six hours a day. I mean, like, you know, I've had, I I actually had to take a call um, about a student who, a former student where they were like, well, does this kid have ADHD? And it's like, well, if they'd stop playing video games for six hours a day, maybe they could concentrate a little bit more. How about we start there? How about we do things that, you know, and then if they still have problems, okay, let's, you know. Right. (laughs) I mean, that's the thing. Do the first things first and then move on, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe you just can't organize your way out of a paper sack. Okay, let's, you know, fix it. Right. Rather than saying, oh, let's medicate you or, you know, mistaking physical or mental problems with spiritual problems because then what it doesn't work right right and sometimes then it's like oh well god failed right or it could be used as a crutch where it's actually a, a spiritual problem and um it's just given over to simple mental illness as that's going to be the solve the issue And let's be honest, like the physical problems and the mental problems oftentimes create and exacerbate the spiritual problems. Right. So somebody will come to you and be like, you know, 
I don't know if God loves me. And it's like, well, okay, what did you eat? Well, I, you know, I didn't stick to my diet or I didn't get enough sleep last night. But yeah, of course. Right. That's going to make everything worse. And so like actually being wise in this and saying, look, physical problems require physical solutions. Mental problems require mental solutions. Spiritual problems require spiritual solutions. And and there there is there is I, I'm sorry to, you know, steal a bullhagen from you. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, like it it's it seems very, very simple, but people don't actually understand that. You know? And sometimes seeing a counselor, like if this lady is having that many problems, uh, and I don't say this lightly, but Perhaps there needs to be some medication to just get her to a place where she can actually start to work on herself. Right. I mean, I think, you know, the human brain is an amazing organ. And the problem with starting medication is that your brain gets used to it. And then you have to keep upping the medication and you never get off of it. And that may be the case for some people, but the goal should always be to live without these things because that's how God designed us to live. I, I would you say know? one of the things I've learned over that's been really helpful in dealing with, with from the spiritual side, mental illness is helping people recognize when is it my clear thought or my unclear thoughts. And this is where I think particularly Lutheran theology has a great way of helping with the spiritual side of it is when people feel or think this way to be able to take a step out of all of that and say, well, what does God's word say? Because if someone's not thinking clearly and, and, and they're not perceiving things clearly, and there's no way you can conceivably uh, figure out all of that to say, okay, I know you feel this way and I know you have these thoughts, but let's take a step out if you can and let's hear what, like, so if someone's depressed, God feels far away from me, or I have unresolved guilt, or something like that, that they're struggling with, well, okay, I recognize that you will feel this way, and I may not be able to keep you from feeling that way. What I ask you to do is recognize those thoughts and feelings and place it in the context of God's word. And so where you confront these thoughts, these feelings that you may have with the truth of God's word, not that in a therapeutic way, but a way of, of recognizing what is truth, true and what is false in that context. Mm-hmm. And, well, and, and this is what cognitive behavioral therapy actually does, right? Get some distance from your feeling. Rather than saying, I am blank or life sucks, say things like, I feel like life sucks. Because right. then it's like, okay, my feelings, my emotions do not constitute reality. Right? Get mm-hmm. some distance from those things. And then you can actually analyze them and be like, okay, what is actually real? Right. What does, you know, and this is true even of people, like, let's say you had a bad dad and you have a hard time calling God father. Well, who defines fatherhood? Is it your own narrow experience of, you know, a deadbeat dad? Or is it the Father in heaven who has given you all things? Oh, you don't know what it's like to live in a family. Well, how about the church, which is a family, right? Mm-hmm. 
Like it, let's def- let's define reality by the thing that actually defines reality, which is God. And on um, many different levels, this is actually the life of the Christian. I mean, we sin because it seems like it's good and right. It's pleasing. This will make my life better in somehow, or it'll mm-hmm. give me relief in somehow. It is going to to erase some sort of cognitive cognitive dissonance in my own mind. And and so that's what one of the things that leads us to sin. To use a bullhaganism, temptation is by nature tempting. Right. Mm-hmm. But I, I will I will also say that, you know, there are people out there and this is why being kind to everyone, giving them the chance, bearing with them is so important because you don't know until you're in these things. You know, some people act very terribly because they want love and affection. It's the complete opposite of what you'd ever think. But there are people out there who will treat you horribly because they actually want love and affection. Because that's what sin does. Sin twists and it corrupts things into something that is just so very weird and evil and you know give them a chance just give them a chance bear with them try our conscience be their friend or we all deal with corrupted consciences yeah and it twists things into things that are where you know that's the point we're at is where i can't remember what it's called i think it's called borderline personality disorder or abandonment issues. Okay, well, these people are going to abandon me anyways, so I might as well push them away, right? Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, there are people in this world who are so messed up by sin that this is what they do. I hate you, don't leave me. And it's like, no, this, you know, show them something better. Right. Like, show them what the gospel looks like by how you treat them. Show them unconditional love as far as you can. Right. Like, bear with them, help them, talk with them. Of course, there are times when you have to pass it off because you just simply can't do anymore. I understand that. But if we want this world to change, if we want our lives, the lives of the church, the lives of our communities to reflect what true reality is, then like, <laughs> right. I know it's, it's stupid, but be the change you want to see. Right. Yeah. And, and to like, I mean, this talk about, you know, the work of a pastor. I mean, this is when you talk to pastors, you know, you'll, you'll talk to someone who has dealt with difficult members. And I think what you're saying falls right in line with that where uh, it's really easy for some to just, you know, refer to them as alligators or something like that, you know. And, and, and sometimes that is true. Right. Sometimes there are people who are just against you. Right. But there, there are so many people out there who are just, they, they, for whatever reason, the devil, sin, their own. I mean, I never thought I would have to teach people to love themselves but this is something i find among lutherans like that oh you mean like i should want things for myself yeah jesus says love your neighbor as yourself which presupposes that you i don't know actually love yourself (laughs) right (laughs) 
Or no man hateth his own flesh, but loveth and cherisheth it. It's like, what kind of teaching have we been doing that has screwed people up so bad? Like, what have we done to people? What has the world done to our teaching? No doubt we should, you know, we should argue against, you know, sin and selfishness and all this kind of stuff. But like, (laughs) self-preservation? Goals? (laughs) <laughs> ambitions ambitions aren't necessarily evil right. I, I don't know I, I just it is crazy to think that this is what this is like and, and, we'd actually have to teach people to love themselves and it's only because get God worse. loves them <laughs> right and so well Vicar we got a lot of work to do indeed good luck <laughs> right that's why we do this podcast yeah right? you know some someday the, the the children of uh, coming out of the pandemic will be your board of elders. <laughs> Oof. Can't wait. <laughs> They'll be like, Pastor, do you remember when we did Zoom meetings? <laughs> Actually, like the I, rotary phone. <laughs> behind the collar moment, although it's kind of funny. Talk about behind the collar moment while I'm wearing a t shirt or a tank top and Vicar has a tie. We look quite a <laughs> motley crew. <laughs> Yeah, I had some errands to run. I, Vicar and I met at the Freak Factory, and then I had some errands to run. I didn't have time to change, so I'm still in my tank top, and then he has a tie on. I, I went straight home and showered and got dressed again. Yeah. I was busy doing the Lord's work. Hey, I did, I did my iron. chores before going to the Freak Factory, so. <laughs> <laughs> I, I try to work ahead. I try so hard to work ahead. It's okay. Sometimes things happen, you know. Right. So, so I shouldn't, or you're saying I shouldn't do six hours of video games. I think I've. Okay. Well, if that's the one thing you get out of this, I guess. <laughs> well, that's a pretty good but message I, in and of itself. No, though. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I do think like if your brain adapts to this kind of technology and you get used to like images going like this, it means it's going to be really hard to do any sort of deep reading. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't, I don't and know. I mean, like, I don't know how I would have survived like being raised in this environment. (laughs) So, I mean, like all of those things, like see theology doesn't just touch one thing. Like it touches all things. And this is where, you know, we have to give advice to parents. We have to give advice to students. You know, I mean, Bullhagen, you know, look at the obesity rate in the United States. Of course, kids are going to be depressed. You know, if they're corpulent, corpulent, right? Vicar. What, what is, does corpulent mean? It's a synonym of like rotund. Hey, Vicar, what does rotund mean? <laughs> Let me pull up my pocket thesaurus. I'm sure this will all be cut out. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Spoke too soon. Yep. So corpulent adjective of a person at such so <laughs> <laughs> <just> means fat. <laughs> So, you know, I mean, I think when we're dealing with people, we have to talk about the physical, the mental, and the spiritual, and where else are they going to get it, right? I mean, we have to be prepared for that. Right. I will say, you know, one thing about, like, the 80s action stars like Schwarzenegger and Stallone, I mean, they grew up with abusive dads or deadbeat dads, and... They actually lifted weights to overcome that. And I don't see that in this next generation. 
No. I don't, you know, so. <clears throat> They've become apathetic instead y- of. Yeah, I yeah. mean, I don't know. And I don't know what's worse because, I mean, Stallone is, or, uh, you know, Schwarzenegger is kind of a jerk in so many ways. Mm-hmm. As the uh, documentary from My Bachelor Party, which <laughs> Bullhagen made us watch, uh, <laughs> definitely showed. But I can use it for theology. So, you know. <laughs> right? I mean, he's kind of a jerk, right? Yeah. But at the same time, I would rather see even, you know, sinful ambition and some sort of life, even though it's misguided and misdirected and, you know, deficient and tainted by sin i'd rather see that than despair and nothing i that's nihilism that scares me more than anything right oh well, that, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's an death. example of that is you know is uh i'll be anxious to see when i go to the uh the iowa caucus later the age bracket yeah you might <laughs> You and Vicar will be the youngest ones there by <laughs> quite right. a margin, I I imagine. Because I think most people, younger people, are just like, ah, yeah, they don't. It's the best. They don't care. What what happens is going to happen. So, but you know, that's the thing is. Is that how you kind of feel, kind of Peter? Sometimes a little bit. Yeah, man. Like, what am I going to do to change anything? See, and that's exactly <laughs> the mentality that I'm afraid of. It's like, it. It's like, well, nothing's going to change. I I don't know. That just, that scares me in a lot of ways because that is telling me that people don't feel like they have any sort of agency in their lives, that God actually wants their good, that God has given them freedom to make a good life for themselves and actually make society better. This is a very, very different view than the last, you know, 50 years. Yeah, and I mean, I'd I don't say know. That's it, the, yeah, go ahead, Vicar. Sorry. No, you're fine. I was just going to say that I'd say that that's the prevailing view among people of my age bracket is that nothing, it, there's no point in then shooting for anything. And yet the gospel can change things. Exactly. The gospel makes the weak strong. It conquers kingdoms. It puts to flight the armies of aliens, as Hebrews 11 says. Mm. Women receive their dead back. Men wandered on the earth of whom the world was not worthy. I just, why not? Why? Let's be that. Let's preach that. That's what these people need to hear. Confronting the be... armies of aliens. There, there's your title. <laughs> See, I can tie it all together. <laughs> all so. right. Good discussion. Yeah. yeah. Well, but we should probably end it, right? I think so. Yeah. Well... That is a, a a powerful way to end, Berg. We summoned up the energy, so we got there. We got there. Like I, like we said, any ideas that you want us to do for a five year anniversary, uh, let us know. And thank you for listening. This is Bullhagen. This is Berg, and this is Vicker. May your armies have sleeves. <laughs> thank you for joining us. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Questions, thoughts, concerns? You can contact us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast, on Twitter at clericalheirsp for podcast, or email us at feedback at clericalheirs.org. Thanks for listening to Clerical Heirs. See you next time.